Connection Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hey, fellow history buffs. This is episode seven of Historical Fiction Unpacked. Today, we're talking to award-winning author Christy Ann Hunter. Christy writes Christian fiction Regency romances. Christy released her 11th book in August. It's titled Vine for the Viscount, and it begins a new series um, based in Regency England, but also dealing with horse racing and horses. So we had a lot of fun talking about horses and talking about Regency England and the customs that were typical in that time period and in that culture. We also talked about how we define success as authors. I know you guys are going to enjoy this conversation, so let's get started. Christy Ann Hunter, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Thank you for having me. Your most recent novel was titled Vine for the Viscount. What can you tell us about this book? So Vine for the Viscount is the first in a new series for me. Uh, all of my books are set in Regency England, but this one, this series is going out to new market. So we are handling all the horse races and the excitement and all of the Balderall and fiddle dee dee that goes along with horse racing <laughs> and, and going and watching the horse races and all of that sort of thing. And there's the culture and the social aspect around it. So lots of country parties and social life and things kind of like what you would see if you'd read like Pride and Prejudice, more of the country living than yes. the London living. So okay. This particular story is about a guy who has inherited his title and his estate, which includes a racing stable, but he grew up in India. So he has never set foot on English soil, like actual England soil. So mm -hmm. he comes thinking he knows everything that his parents had prepared him for everything he was going to encounter when he, he moved to England, when he got his title and he gets there and realizes he knows nothing. And he's kind of fumbling his way and he encounters the young lady who lives next door to him and rides his horses. And she kind of acts as a guide and they kind of start out trying to find each other a spouse before realizing that really they should be together. <laughs> it took him long enough to realize that. Well, you know, sometimes people are stubborn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what inspired you to write this story? For this story, I really wanted to look at what happens when you walk into a situation expecting one thing. And it's completely different. So for mm -hmm. both of them, that's the situation in, in different ways. So for him, he's expecting a certain lifestyle. He's been expecting to be able to step in and have a certain authority. And none of it is the way he thought it was going to be. And so he realizes he can't rely on anything he thinks he knows. It's all brand new. And for her, she had the certain expectation of what would make her happy in life. And when she actually looks like she's going to get it, she realizes it's not what she actually wants for a fulfilling life. And so they're both kind of have their expectations thrown on their head. And how do you fumble through that when what you thought you were going to do or thought you were going to get is not what you get? Right. So it's kind of an exploration of that. That's cool. So um, because this book and the new series focuses on horse racing, I was curious, do you 
What is your experience with horse racing? Do you ride? Do you own horses? I do not own horses, sadly. I love horses. I was a horse crazy kid. So I was one of those girls who had horse posters plastered on her wall. Every book I read in my preteen mm. years had to have a horse in it. Yeah. And <laughs> all of those. I did take horseback riding lessons for about two years. And then we moved and Aww. there wasn't um, a convenient stable where we moved to for me to take lessons. So my riding experience is very slim. Uh, so I've had to definitely talk to some people with much more experience than I have for writing yeah. these books. But I have just always been fascinated with horses. I love horses. I think they are absolutely gorgeous. And it looks like they shouldn't function at all because their front legs are the size of toothpicks. <laughs> they should yeah. fall over. And it's just yeah. one of those things where you just marvel at what God can create because they're perfectly balanced, even though they look like they shouldn't be. Right. <laughs> yeah, I love them too. I think they're beautiful. And I had, um, I rode for a long time when I was young. Not, I haven't been on a horse in a, in a many years now, but um, I did have one for a, a short time. So I always enjoy a good horse story too. I think horses are just one of those animals that can have so much personality, kind of like dogs. Yeah. You can really bring a personality of certain animals work better in a book than others. Yes. Dogs, horses, they can have a little bit more personality on the page than mm -hmm. some other animals can. So it was kind of fun to create this cast of horses for this series and give them each like, what kind of temperament are they going to have? And Right. That sort and, of thing. and how did you come up with all their names? I was like, wait, I feel like I'm reading about Israelite kings, but then there are also, I think there are some Greek names thrown in there too. So what I did, because I was like, there's too many horses that I, I can't just start <laughs> pulling names out of a hat. So right. I gave every stable a theme. Oh, cool. So Hawksworth, which is where my main hero, Hudson, his stable Yes. They're all Greek names and the race horses are named after the Greek gods mm. and goddesses. Mm -hmm. And then all of the pleasure horses are named after like the demigods or the Greek heroes. Okay. So the lesser Greek mythology characters. Yeah. So there's a little tiered system going in their names. Oh, that's cool. And then the Meadowland Park um, stable where one of the other gentlemen, his, his horses, they are all Israelite Kings. Okay. And I just had to give each stable a theme because I was like, there's too many names, too many horses. <laughs> it was yeah. That was a good idea. Good way to handle it. You already mentioned that all of your books are set in Regency. Is it, they're all in Regency England? Yes. So they're all in Regency England, which means they're set in the early 1800s, obviously mm -hmm. in England. Um, and all of my books are actually in the same world. So you'll see oh, okay. characters from other series will pop up. So there was there's characters in Vying for the Viscount that are actually from my first series. Okay. The Hawthorne I, House series. When I was looking through reviews, I noticed a couple of people mentioned that. And I love, I love crossover characters. I think that's so much fun. Um, it's probably fun for you too to put them in. It is fun, except I think it drives my copy editor nuts because she'll be like, okay, what color do you want his eyes to be? Because you've changed them now. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you have to keep track of those things, don't you? So I'm finding that my early notes are not 
as detailed as they needed to be. So I need to go back and enhance those a little bit. As I get further from the books, I remember less. Right. That's true. So I haven't read, other than Jane Austen's books, I haven't really read a lot of Regency novels. And I found it interesting that the waltz was considered a scandalous dance. I didn't remember that. Um, So how did you go about learning about all the different customs and um, manners of the time? So my, my first introduction to Regency was through fiction. Okay. Um, uh, It was through Regency set novels and I fell in love with the whole era that way. And you just kind of absorb some ideas of what the time period was like through reading historical novels and, and that time period. Right. It is, you know, as I got into researching myself, you know, you mm-hmm. realize sometimes, oh, those early novels I read are wrong, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is always fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, some of them were written in the 80s, early 90s. They didn't have quite as much access to easy research as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I forgive them some things. Other things I'm like, oh, come on, now you were just lazy. But <laughs> Right. But that was how I first got introduced to the period. Okay. And one of the interesting things about Regency is that there's so many books. If you want to read a Regency set books, you have a lot of choice. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of books set in Regency England. And so there's almost been this fictional history created around it that readers kind of expect certain things. Oh. And so as I got into it and I was researching and learning more about it, and everything. It's kind of like, how do you balance the expectation of somebody who's read 500 Regency set novels <sighs> with reality? But yeah. as far as all the customs and the manners, the beautiful thing about Regency England is that because, especially if you're writing high society books, which I tend to write books that are either set in high society or kind of on the fringes of it. Mm-hmm is they cared very much about their manners. So there are manuals, there are etiquette books. And so you can read them and figure out that, oh, you have to walk in front of them going up the stairs and behind them going down the stairs because <laughs> you don't want them to see your ankle. And oh my goodness. You know, all of this things, you can learn that because it's in a book. <laughs> wow. That's a lot to learn. And I'm actually, I love etiquette. I, I love learning about it, but that just, it seems like over the top. There's an entire section in one of the books that I have kind of perused on the language of the fan. So it's like, if it's closed and to the left side of your face, it means this. If it's (sighs) open, it means this. And if it's pointed down, it means this. And I'm like, one, you've got to have memorized all that and make sure you're not doing the wrong thing. And two, (sighs) you have to hope that whoever you're trying to communicate with has also memorized it. And that y'all memorized from the same list. Right. <laughs> and that is just. That's so complicated. I'm that that had to go bad sometimes. <laughs> right. Well, you know, they had so much time to kill since they had servants to do everything for them. So I guess this is what they spent their time on thinking about. Well, they spent their time changing clothes. <laughs> you had three, four outfits a day. Oh, my goodness. If you were high society and living in London. Oh, yeah. So- sounds like my daughter. So I knew this, I knew that it was, um, that only intimate friends called each other by their Christian names, but I just was surprised, I guess, at how 
shocked. Like there's a point where um, the protagonist calls another man by his Christian name. And um, the other lead character is so shocked. So yeah, it was a very big deal to let somebody use your name. Um, And I probably have it. I have it happen more often in my books than it would have happened in reality, just because the modern reader does not want to read Mr. Whitworth through the whole book. It gets very (laughs) tiresome. Yes. And so I will have a point where they do switch to using Christian names just because it's easier for the reader, but I try to make sure it always happens at a point that makes sense in the story. And, to use it because it was a very, very big deal. You would have married couples where she would call him Mr. Whatever, or Lord Stilden their whole life. (laughs) In private. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Or, or they would shorten it. If he had a title, some people would forget he had a name at all. And he would just go by his title. Mm. Like that was it. Like it was, um, if you were a friend, you would just call him Stilden. Right. You know, and, and some people would forget that he had a name at all. And so using first names is, was a very big deal. Wow. At the time. So interesting. And now we're, we are such a casual society now. (laughs) It's like, especially because I live in the South. Mm -hmm. So even your children, like when they're meeting somebody, it's very, very common for it to be, Mr. First Name or Miss First Name. Yeah. Since all of your books are set in England, have you traveled there or lived there? I have never lived there. I have been there twice. Okay. For re- for research pur- purposes? or No, they were vacation trips. So I went to England as a teenager and it was a pleasure trip. So we didn't hit all these obscure little museums that I would hit if I were to go take a research trip there now. I'd right. read every plaque and take me hours to go through these little bitty museums. But I remember enough about like just the way it was seemed on the old streets and seeing the history of it, that it helps me a little bit, mm-hmm. but I do a lot of walking around on Google earth yeah. and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of reading travel journals. Um, it was mm. a very big thing to write travel journals during this era. Oh. And so I could go read about what was somebody's experience when they traveled through Cambridge. Mm-hmm. When they what did they think of when they looked at the Heath for the first time, which is where all the race courses were are, yes. or are in Newmarket. You know, so I can get kind of some glimpses into what does that look like um from those things. Mm-hmm. I was hoping to go back over there and do a research trip this fall. Obviously that's not happening. Mm, Right. (laughs) Um, So I'm not sure when that will be back in the realm of possibility to go do that because I have a few book ideas that I'm like, okay, I can't do those until I go there in person because there's just too many question marks. And so there's certain things that I feel comfortable with what I can research here and other things that are on a list of, yeah, I'm going to have to get over there and see those. Yeah. Cool. And then have you been to India or, I mean, India wasn't really in the book much except for in Hudson's memory, I guess, but. I have never been to India. So what I did with Hudson was I relied very heavily on a very good friend of mine um, named Kimberly Duffy. Oh, 
I'm talking to her soon, actually. (laughs) Yes. So she writes, has written a book set in India and her next two books are also set in India. And she did live in India for a while and had been, was researching a lot about India for her books at the time and things. So she provided a lot of my insight on India. And so I was able to do a little bit of research for some very particular things of my time period because my books are set earlier than hers are. Yeah. But as far as the differences of what you would experience from India culturally and then switching over to the English culture, a lot of that came from Kimberly's experience. Okay. And so that is one of those things where it's very helpful because I was trading knowledge with her because she had some scenes in her second book are set in England. And so she was asking me about titles and oh, right. <laughs> various things like that. So we did an information exchange as we were writing and um, that was very helpful. That's great when authors can help each other that way. Yeah, it's fabulous. It's a, it's one of those weird small communities where you just stumble across each other mm-hmm. at the weirdest points where you never expect to. And, and then you realize, oh, you know this and you know this. And we can play six degrees of anything to get to just about anybody in the writing world. It's very small. <laughs> right. Okay. So also, I found it really interesting that um, the male protagonist in your book, Hudson, he lives in a round house. Um, what? I mean, it's an enormous roundhouse. So if you say a roundhouse, it's not like a, just. Oh, no, it's a manor. Yeah, house. like a manor. So this is, right. this is an English estate, and the center's part is round. Yes. Wow. Um, so why did you make his house round? Did you have experience with a roundhouse yourself that you wanted to put in the book, or what was. No, that? it's actually based on a real house. Oh, wow. Where <laughs> Where is this real house? So it's actually near. That area, it's it's elsewhere in Suffolk. I can never say Suffolk right. That was pretty good, I think. <laughs> it's a house called Ickworth. Okay. And um, so I always try to use real places to base my fictional ones off of because you can look at pictures and floor plans and make sure you space everything correctly. And it helps keep things consistent. Yeah. So I based it off of a house called Ickworth where the center portion is round. Wow. And like I have, there's pictures of these round, these curved doors because all the walls are curved around this central hall. And the library is like this half circle shape because (sighs) the wall curves around and, and everything. And it's, it's a very strange looking house. Mm. And I said, this just needs to be in a story. I love this house. And it was a great thing to throw Hudson into just to make his life all that much more difficult. Yeah. The poor guy. He had a lot of, (laughs) a lot of obstacles in his way. And one of them was the house. (laughs) One of them was the house. So the stable is not from that house. The stable is based on a stable from a different house. Okay. Um, the, but there's there's a another house in that area that is called Seton Dalaval Hall. I was mm. probably mispronounced that too. But they had a stone stable where everything in it was stone. Mm, so neat. the stall walls, the floor, everything's stone in that stable. And I just loved it's beautiful. It's absolutely yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. But I was also just thinking about how echoey that must be. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Which made it a great place to have people have all these conversations that everybody could hear, (laughs) which is another really fun aspect of the book. Yes. Lots of eavesdropping going on. Yes. 
But I do like to do that for my locations. I like to pull from several real places so that it's a very possible fictional mm-hmm. place that I've created. It's very accurate to the time because all the aspects did exist. Right. That's cool. I like that. So this book has a lot to say about love and marriage. Um, yes. What's the message you're hoping to convey about that? I think the message I would want people to realize is that when you marry somebody, it is not just a contract, that it is this bonding, this relationship, this life you build Mm -hmm. when you connect your life to somebody's. And both of them start off looking at it almost as a business agreement, which was very common for the time. Right. You know, where you look at, oh, well, I just need you to bring this to the table and then we can live our separate lives because we'll all have the pieces we need. And I think that is something that relates so much to today because we can do the same thing. We can find ourselves going in separate directions from our spouse and like maybe we see them on Sunday yeah, so that we can go to church together. But otherwise it's like, okay, you're taking that kid and I'm taking this kid and you're working these hours and I'm working these hours. And it can be like more like roommates instead of a couple that is building a life together. And Mm -hmm. just the importance of who you select to enter into that relationship with, because you need to find someone you can bond with and become one with and not just make a business agreement with. Right. Not just have that partnership where you're managing life together. The other part of it is to realize that God often has a better plan for you than the one that you have for you. Yeah. So they both had this idea of what the ideal spouse would be, but the way God had created them, they were much better together than Mm -hmm. they would have been with this person they thought they wanted. And so realizing how God created you and the pieces that he made in you that can be whole, you can be a whole person. You should be a whole person walking into a marriage. Right. And you're still you, you know, when you get married, you don't just become half of a person. No, it's one plus one equals one. So you got to be whole, but some of those fit better together than other people. Like you got to find someone that's compatible Mm -hmm. and allowing God to trace those steps and and guide you to somebody who's compatible is sometimes one of the most difficult things to do because we want to take it in our own hands and figure it out and make it work instead of just waiting on his timing and his path. So can we go back in time to when you first started writing? Um, I know you had a degree in something very different from writing. Um, I do. (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us how how you got from that to where you are today with 11 books already released? Yes. So I have a degree in computer science from Georgia Tech. Wow. And I spent 10 years working in corporate IT. So I worked in, this is going to sound all very technical here. I did coding for data mining and management for large companies for 10 years. Wow. That sounds very different from (laughs) what you're doing now. It's very different from what I'm doing now. I've always been a huge reader. Mm -hmm. though. Uh, always loved story, always loved the written word. And I actually started off trying to tell stories through um, I tried to become an independent filmmaker. Oh, wow. 
that was actually what I first did um, when we decided that I would step away from my job. When we started having children, we made the decision that it was better if I stayed home. Mm-hmm. And I started trying to do small videos. So I would do videos for sermon illustrations for churches. I was making like, you know, the little videos that they play on Sunday mornings. Sometimes yeah. if you in, in a service to go with the sermon, right. That was actually where I started. And the problem is that two small children are not quiet when you go to film things. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. And so that was making it very difficult to, to try to pursue that because I was the stay, I was staying at home. So I was the main caregiver for our children. Right. And so whenever I went to film something, they had to come with me and, you know, they were not quiet. And I have tried writing off and on since I was a kid. Like I have books from when I tried to write as a teenager, started trying to write uh, books, never got very far. I never finished any of them. Mm -hmm. But when I was pregnant with our third child, I had insomnia. And so I had two toddlers and I was pregnant in the middle of the night and I'm not about to do anything that is going to possibly wake up the toddlers and nothing that makes noise at all. <laughs> yeah. And so I was stuck on the computer and I finally got tired of playing solitaire. And so I decided I was going to try my hand at writing a book again. And this time I finished, I finished one. Awesome. And I realized one day looking up going, I wrote the whole story. I wrote a whole story. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and talking to my husband about it. And I, I finally got the guts to share it with a few people he sent me to a local, there was a local writers conference and I signed up last minute because it was close enough that I could travel from the house, travel back Mm -hmm. and forth from the house. Yeah. And Bethany house was actually uh, one of the editors there that I could pitch to. So since I was clueless, I was like, they're going to love it. And this is going to be the start of my (laughs) career. And I'll be able to give people books for Christmas because I knew nothing. Right. So yeah, this thing was in October and I thought I was going to give people books for Christmas. Oh, let's just all laugh at my naivety there. Well, people don't know. know. <laughs> so that was my first, I was actually, so that was actually an editor from Bethany house wrote me a very nice rejection letter because I pitched mm-hmm. it well and she wanted to see it. And it was kind of like, you have a good voice, but your story is weak. Mm. And I think you need to do a little practice. Oh. So that's what I did. I started just, you know, learning a lot about writing and about story and about the business and everything. And then I entered a contest with the book that became A Noble Masquerade. And it finaled. And that kind of just caught the eye of one of the Bethany House editors. And Mm. she contacted me and said, hey, I'd like to look at that. And now here we are, 11 months later. That's awesome. So I did actually, though, um, this is kind of funny. I plotted those first books when I was trying to figure out how to structure the story and actually get into being like, seriously, let me think about what this is going to look like. Mm-hmm. I plotted them using uh, something called UML diagrams, which is actually a way for designing computer programs. Oh, <laughs> so your uh, your degree did help you in yes. plotting your novels. Yes. That's cool. So did that first book, the one with the weak story, has that ever been published? Like, did you rewrite it? And I rewrote it about 10 times. It's oh. the book I learned on. 
So I kept rewriting it every time I learned how to write. So it eventually <laughs> did. Yes, it is out. It is the novella, A Lady of Esteem. Okay, great. And in many, many, many revisions later, that is what it became. So I understand that one of your books, which one of your books won the 2016 Rita Award? A Noble Masquerade. An, okay. Um, and was that also the Christie Award finalist? The same... It, w- it was a Christie Award finalist, yes. Okay. Um, so that book was um, nominated for awards all over the place, which was very interesting. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. That was my first book. And it's kind of like, oh, my goodness, where do you go from here? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was your first book in 2016? Or no, it came uh, out in probably. It came out in 2015. Okay. But you've written. Wow. I, I'm in awe of people who release more than a, a book a year. That's. I did um, one series where I did a book every six months plus two novellas. I mm-hmm. will never do that again. Uh, <laughs> we're every, I'm every nine months now, which is a much more doable time frame for me. Yeah, I'm sure compared to every six months and two yes. novellas, that's. That sounds pretty rigorous. Um, so what was that like when it was nominated? Tell me about that experience. Well, it was crazy because it's your, it's my first book. And it's kind of like, that's the only experience you have is like, is yeah. And you know, it's not always going to be like that. It can't always be like that. Right. But at the same time, that's all, you know, so it feels like this is what it should be like. Is this what it should feel like? when it's getting all these, you know, acclaimed reviews and it's getting mm. nominated for all these awards and, you know, you're getting all this traction with it. And then you're thinking, what's going to happen when book two comes out? Like, is it going to be like this again? And you're kind of hoping it is, but you know, it's not going to be. And so then it's a kind of a letdown, even though it shouldn't be, it is when yeah. the next book does nothing. I mean, it sells, it sells, but that's about it. <laughs> Yeah. And and so it's it's kind of a weird roller coaster when your first book does that. Right, I would think so. So were you at the award ceremony when you won? I was. I was able to be at that award ceremony. In fact, I signed up. I didn't sign up for the conference to go until I was nominated because it was in California, which is mm, yeah. very, you know, long trip for me. Lots of a very expensive plane ticket and everything, so I was not going to go, but once I was nominated, I was like, well, now I have to go. So <laughs> I was there. And so I was able to, you know, give my speech and, and mm-hmm. everything. And so that was fun and exciting to get to meet the other finalists and walk up on stage and get my trophy. And it's heavy. The Rita wow. was really heavy. Um, and so that was kind of like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get this home? So then it had to be in my luggage coming home because I was not about to check that thing. And so it was on my carry on luggage and on a, it's so heavy and dense that Mm -hmm. it just looks like a black blob. Oh no. When it goes through (laughs) airport security. Yeah. So that's an interesting moment when you open that in airport security and you have to open the big box and they have to check it and make sure there's no explosives inside it or anything. That's an interesting experience. (laughs) I'm sure. So how have you managed to keep plodding along doing, you know, writing these great books that your readers, you know, you have a lot of loyal 
readers, I think. And um, how do you do that without the acclaim of <laughs> the that the first book got? So you have to decide what success is. And I had to decide very early on that success was that one email that I got from somebody who read a book and was like, oh, wow, it made this huge impact on me. Right. That's success. So when I get that first email and and I've been very blessed, I've gotten one with every book I've written. There's been at least one. Yeah. That first email comes in and that's the moment when I say, okay, it's good. It's done, mm-hmm. you know, because you not, you're not going to get awards every time. Every book is not going to be critically acclaimed. And interesting, interestingly enough, because again, you know, sometimes when you do things because you just don't know you shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so my second book um, actually overlaps the first book time frame wise. So there's some scenes that are actually in both books, which I don't recommend. It was very, very nerve wracking to try to do that. Mm. But there was a lot of people who didn't want to read it because they didn't like the character in the first book. Oh, so the the heroine from the second book is kind of the villain in the first book. Oh, wow. And so there were a lot of people who were like, I don't want to read it. And then someone would read it and they would be like, oh, my goodness, this just changed everything about how I viewed this. And that was when I started realizing that success. Yeah. Awards are nice. They're fun. It's fun to get dressed up and plan. Right. Of course. And I've won a few more since then. And it's always fun. And it's nice. It's nice to have that thing to look at on your shelf and say, okay, yes, those days when you feel like you can't write. Yeah, you can look what you've done. Right. And right. But that is not how I measure success anymore. Mm -hmm. Because you can't do it that way. I was very fortunate the night I won the Rita. I was standing there after the banquet, you know, everybody's talking and milling around. And I actually got to meet the lady who was named after. So the real Rita. Mm. And I was just saying that, you know, it's kind of weird. You know, this is my first book and it won this. I'm like, what do I do next? And she just looked at me and she says, well, you write the next book. (laughs) Right. And just the simplicity of that moment made me realize, yeah, the award is nice, but that's not what matters. Mm -hmm. And, so that has always stuck with me as what do you do next? Well, you just write the next book. Yes. And then you pray that God does something with it once it gets out into the world. Just write the next book is the answer to so many, so many dilemmas. <laughs> it, it is. It is. It has served me well. Right. It has served me well. Bad numbers. Just write the next book. Yeah. Watch went wonky. Just write the next book. <laughs> you know, it, it really answers a lot of things. <laughs> Right. That's great. So what are you writing now? What is your next book and what can you tell us about it? So the next books that I'm working on right now are the rest of the Hearts on the Heath series. Mm -hmm. So book two will be coming out in April of 2021. Mm -hmm. And it centers around Aaron Whitworth, who is one of the side characters in Vying for the Viscount. Right. And he meets a lovely young lady who is an excellent writer and is both the solution to a major problem he has and the creation of a lot more problems. So, (laughs) you know, 
that's that's a lovely adventure that they get to go on. And so that'll be coming out in April. And I'm actually working on edits for that right now. And okay. then I'm excited I'm, to, to uh, I'm excited to know that, that Aaron will have some love in his life, by the way, because I felt very sad for him. But anyway, I, note. Aaron actually showed up. The first time Aaron showed up was in a book called uh, Defense of Honor. Mm-hmm. And so people have been asking me for Aaron's uh. book. Ever since the Defense of Honor was published, people have said, Aaron needs a book. Great. And so he's finally getting one. And Yay. it will be coming out in April. And then the third book in that series comes out, I think, early 2022. And okay. so I'm working on writing the first draft of that right now. Nice. So I'm very embedded in the horses at the moment. Right. I'm all about yeah. the horses. <laughs> That's so much fun. My plan had been to visit, we have several uh, dressage and riding academies and things in the Atlanta area near where I live. And my plan had been to go visit some of them. And right now they're just kind of closed down because of all the COVID stuff. And so I'm having to try to communicate an interview via email, which is not quite the same experience as getting to go to the stable, but it's been nice to be able to get that expert information still. Mm Mm-hmm. So you're the first guest I've interviewed who also has their own podcast. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your podcast? I would love to. So my podcast is called A Rough Draft Life, and I do it with my friend, Lindsay Brackett. And we just kind of talk about life's struggles and ways that you can make tiny changes to make life better because Mm. we have been friends for a while. And we just were always talking to each other about, you know, little changes that we could make because we always think of these big changes that life needs. Like I need to start an exercise program, or I need to completely change the way I eat, or I need to, obviously you can tell I'm working on getting healthier and losing weight right now, which is why (laughs) those are the ideas that came to my head. Those are similar ideas to those in my head too. So, you know, or we, th- we just think of big changes. I need right. to pray for an hour every day. You know, mm-hmm. we think of these big, we need to make these big, huge changes to impact our lives. But a lot of times a small tweak gets you on a better path. And mm-hmm. so our tagline is that we're all just making it up as we go along because this whole thing called life, like we're just figuring it out one day at a time. Mm-hmm. And all you can do is edit your life today so that tomorrow is better. Like, we always end each episode with edit your life and make tomorrow better than today. And that's all we're trying to do is just figure out what do we need to change? What do we need to fix? And so mostly it's mine and Lindsay providing therapy for, therapy for each other and just letting everybody listen in. That's great. But it's a lot of fun. And we've had a few other authors have guested with us. We try to have a guest on every now and then so that you get a different perspective than just me and Lindsay on things. And it's been a lot of fun. We are approaching a full year now of podcasting and it has been a fabulous journey and we are really excited with some great plans of where we want to build it and do with it. So it's been Yeah, that's cool. And I love the title, um, A Rough Draft Life. Back to historical fiction, though. Um, How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? People are people. People have always been people. Uh, Like you can read 
the Bible, you can read any historical account of, you know, going back to the Greek plays, everything. People are people and have always been people with very similar struggles and very similar, you know, issues uh, that they deal with. I mean, you can hear all of these stories. I mean, how insecure were all of the Greek gods and everything and all of those mythological tales? We have had the same issues throughout time. And I think the beautiful thing about reading a historical story is that you are removed enough from your actual life that you can just kind of see things a little differently. You're not Mm -hmm. colored by how do you feel about a certain brand of car or a certain type of job or a certain city that might be set in. You know, you get to remove everything about modern day life and just look at people. Right. And that can let you see yourself in another character that you might not have, or it might let you see a different lesson that you might not have. You know, when you can't just pick up the cell phone to talk to somebody, what does that mean Communication about communication in the book? And mm-hmm. see things a little differently when you strip away what we're familiar with. So I love historical fiction for that reason, because people are still relatable, but it's just different enough that it can kind of shock your system and make you see it a little differently. Yes. Yeah. I love that. So to finish up, I usually ask my guests, who is your favorite historical fiction author? And can you recommend like, what's the best historical novel you've read this year? Oh goodness. Um, I have so many. Oh goodness. So I love Karen Wittemeyer. She writes um, late 1800s Texas Mm. fiction. And she is probably the one that really made me fall in love with historical Christian fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved her writing, the way she writes, the way she structures a story, the way that faith works into her story. She had a huge influence on how I write. And so all her books, fabulous. You can't go wrong with a Karen Wittemeyer book. Mm. Um, Similar time period. I also really love Regina Jennings. Mm -hmm. So she also writes late 1800s. She's a little bit more out West. Um, Her most recent book is set in Joplin, Missouri. And so I love her books. She, she and I are actually um, critique partners. So nice one of the best books I've read is hers that's coming out, you know, next year. <laughs> I <laughs> just to got know. to finish reading that and it's so good. Um, so both of them are huge, always like auto reads for me. Like I, they're probably two that I keep the most up with because I tend to fall behind a lot because unfortunately now that I write, I read a lot slower than I did before mm-hmm. I was writing. I can't read as many books a, a year as I used to. Right. So, um, if you are looking for other Regency books, there have been a huge bloom in Christian fiction Regencies. Yeah. And um, in Regency, Regency has always been a popular time frame for uh, romance novels in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't so much in the Christian fiction market until fairly recently. So there's always, you know, Julie Clausen kind of paved the way for a lot of us. Mm. But. Carolyn Miller is really good. Um, so if you're looking for one that's similar to kind of a f- similar feel and pace to mine, uh, Carolyn Miller writes excellent ones. So 
I don't know. I, I was going to call you Christy, but maybe I should call you Mrs. Hunter, Lord, Lady <laughs> Lady Hunter or something, <laughs> since we only just met. I gave you permission oh. to address me as Christy. <laughs> okay, Christy. Um, this was a great talk. I, I wondered if you could tell our listeners um, where they can buy your books and and where they can find you online. Absolutely. So you can find everything at christyannhunter.com. And you have that to spell is- Christy the right way. K-R-I-S-T-I. Anybody else is wrong. (laughs) I understand because everybody spells Allison wrong, except, well, not everybody, but a lot of people put two L's in it and it's just one. So (laughs) I don't know why they spell their names wrong. So everything is there, but you can also find me pretty much Christy Ann Hunter is how you find me. So that's my tag. It's my handle on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so you can find me in all those places. The book is available just about everywhere. Um, so I'm, I'm usually Great. pretty easy to find at bookstores, at least if you're ordering online, not always on the shelf because shelf space is minimal. right. But uh, just about anywhere can order it for you. And yeah, that's great. So you can always order if last, you can always get it from Baker Bookhouse, um, which is an independent bookstore up in Michigan. Mm. But okay. because I write for Baker, they've always got it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, this was a pleasure. I had fun. Me too. So friends, I'm sure you're going to want to check out Christy's books and her website, christianhunter.com. Who doesn't love a good Regency romance? You can find the links to connect with Christy in the show notes at alisontreat.com. That's Allison with one L, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com. While you're there, also connect with me on Instagram and Facebook. And I would love to hear from you and hear how you're enjoying this podcast. So if you are enjoying this podcast, can you please subscribe and leave a star rating and review? That would really help get the word out about this new podcast. If you do leave a rating or review, can you please share with me that you did on Instagram or Facebook? Tag me so that I know. Also, make sure you tune in next week when I talk to Brian Litvin on the podcast. He has an exciting new book releasing this coming Tuesday, so you're not going to want to miss that episode. Here's a fantastic quote from Voltaire. He said, what would constitute useful history? that which should teach us our duties and our rights without appearing to teach them. Guys, I think that's exactly what historical fiction does. So until next week, keep reading.